So Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends the reading of God's Word. Please join me now in prayer. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your Word, that it is living and active. And Lord, that you have been gracious to reveal yourself to us by means of your Word. And Lord, your Word is... Uh, powerful, and we pray that this evening you would allow your powerful word to act, Lord, to do its work in us by the power of your Spirit. And Lord, we pray that we would give ear to what is read and what is said, and Lord, that we might respond in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As a Christian, there's likely been various times in your life where you have been uh, praying to the Lord and you have asked Him for an open door or a closed door. And this happens at various junctures in one's life. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're a high school or college student, it can be, Lord, give me an open door so that I can know uh, what college I need to attend. Give me a closed door so I don't go down the wrong path. If you're seeking to get married, you'll do the same thing. Lord, give me an open door. And so it goes on throughout your life. You're constantly praying, Lord, open the door and close the ones that need to be shut. In Revelation chapter 3, with the letter to the church in Philadelphia, we see that Christ is the one who opens the doors. Christ is the one who opens the doors for His people. And so we're going to look at this passage under uh, three different headings. First, the address and attributes, verse 7. Second, the assessment in verses 8 through 10. And finally, the command and promise in verses 11 through 13. So the address and attributes, the assessment, and the command and promise. follows the same structure as the other other letters, except uh, there is something that is missing from this particular letter. So we'll begin first with the address and attributes. The letter is addressed to the church in Philadelphia, which is located about 30 miles to the southeast of Sardis, continuing along where the letter carrier would have been traveling. And it was a location for a great deal of trade and travel. People were constantly moving about, going through this city, very busy city, full of trade. 
And interestingly, this city also in its history suffered several different earthquakes. Uh, So much so that if you read the histories, you can see that people who lived near or in the town of Philadelphia didn't necessarily want to live within the city limits, within the walls of the city. They kind of scattered out into the countryside because they figured if there was going to be an earthquake, we don't necessarily want to be within the city limits. And one more very interesting uh, fact about this uh, city. In the 20th century, there were still approximately five congregations in this city. Still five congregations in this city. So Christ was faithful to His church and allowed it to continue on for a great deal of time. Now the attributes of Christ... If you look with me in the first verse or the seventh verse of chapter three, three different attributes are listed. The Holy One, the True One, the one who has the key of David. It's interesting, if you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll find out that it's actually the demons who first identify who Christ is, the Holy One of Israel. As we heard in this morning's sermon from Dr. Fesco, as Isaiah was having the vision of the pre-incarnate Christ and the seraphim were flying around, what were they crying out? But holy, holy, holy. Christ is holy and He is showing this particular attribute to the church in Philadelphia because He wants to remind them of who He is, but He also wants them, as we'll see, they're a... uh, They are a pure church. They're a holy church. He wants them to continue in their pursuit of holiness and have their eyes fixed upon Him. Isaiah 40.25 says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him? Says the Holy One. That's Christ. Second, we see that Christ is reliable, that His Word can be counted on. He's the true One. And as you read through this passage, we as we already read in the reading of Scripture, there are those within this uh, city who are liars, who are claiming to be a part of the true people of God, who are claiming to be Jews, who are uh, those who are going to inherit the promises of God, and yet Christ will say they're lying. They're not being truthful. And yet this church can fix their eyes upon Christ, who is truthful and reliable, and every promise that He utters will be fulfilled. And then the third attribute that he shares with them is the one who holds the key of David. And this is uh, one of those times where it's helpful to go back into the Old Testament and see, is there any connection that we can make? The book of Revelation is absolutely full of connections with the Old Testament text. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 22, you'll read about a man who is named Eliakim, who is a steward, who had the authority to discharge the duties of the kingdom as one who was entrusted. And Christ is making a reference to that. But he is more than just a servant in the house. As the author to the Hebrews says, he is the son. Matthew chapter 28 tells us he's been given all authority in heaven and upon earth. And for a church that has little power, that has little going for it, they are able to look to the risen Christ as the one who has the keys that can open whatever door that they need in order to fulfill 
their service to the risen Christ. So with that, we'll turn to our second point, which is the assessment. Now, as we read the text, we see that this church has been doing exceedingly well. Exceedingly well. He says that they have little power. Little power in verse 8. Meaning they're, they're not in the cultural driver's seat. They don't have very much significance. This could be that their congregation was very small, very, very weak in numbers. Perhaps they didn't have a whole lot of financial backing within the church. But whatever it means, they are insignificant. But they have done well. They have kept His Word, as He says. And this is very significant because as you study the other churches, you see that the other churches have not kept His Word. They have been faithless. They have failed to keep the Word of Christ. But this congregation has decided we're going to stand upon the Bible rather than listening to the the different words and different messages that are bombarding the church. We're going to listen to the Word of God rather than the false messages. They've kept His Word. What do you do with God's Word? Do you keep it? Do you cherish it? Do you... Treat it as insignificant. In order for us to keep the Word well, we must know the Word well. We must be meditating upon it day and night. This church is commended for keeping the Word. Second, we see Christ is going to do several different things for this church. He says in verse 8, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. No one is able to shut. Christ is the one who opens doors. Now, what, what is the door that he is speaking of? There's many different ways it, it could be interpreted, but the general consensus is that this is a door for effective work in missions and evangelism. Christ is saying he's going to open up the door for his church in Philadelphia to be able to carry out the mission of the church. The mission of the church. That the saints might be gathered in. The gathering and perfecting of the saints. And he's saying, and I'm going to see to it that you can accomplish it. Even if there are those who stand opposed to you, they're not going to be able to push you back. They're going to have to fall before you. In 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul says, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. And there's many other texts in the New Testament that speak of uh, the mission of the church being compared to a door, especially in the book of Acts. We can ask ourselves, what doors for service within Christ's church are open to each of us? Not only within the four walls as we gather together for corporate worship, but also how can we be effective for Christ in the community where He has placed us? He goes on and he says that he will, in verse 9, make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews but are not and lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. 
That is, that this synagogue of Satan, these unbelieving Jews, are going to acknowledge who the true people of God are. The Jews at this time who were not embracing the Messiah still believed that they could lay claim to the promises of the Old Covenant because of their lineage being traced back to Abraham. And yet, if they have rejected Christ, then they're not reading the Old Testament right. If you recall, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus expounds to His disciples, He explains to His disciples that all the Scriptures are about Him. And so if someone is reading the Old Testament and it does not end with them being led to faith in Christ, something has gone wrong. There was an early church father named Ignatius uh, who lived in the, in the first century A.D., And we actually have several different letters from him that have been preserved. One of them is to the letter, or it's the letter to the uh, Philadelphians. And in that letter, Ignatius says, If anyone preaches the one God of the law and the prophets, but denies Christ to be the Son of God, he is a liar. Even as also his father is the devil. And is a Jew falsely so called because being possessed of mere carnal circumcision. That's the letter to the Philadelphians chapter 6. And so he's saying, if Christ is not your master, then your master is sin and Satan. You're not serving the purpose of God. You're not advancing the kingdom of God. You're being used as a pawn in the hand of Satan. Now, when Christ speaks about how these uh, unbelieving Jews will come before the Christians and acknowledge who they are, he's likely making an allusion to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, it says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion, the Holy One of Israel. In the original context, it is speaking of the enemies of God coming and acknowledging the victory of God and His people. And interestingly, Christ is taking this Old Testament text and He is applying it to those who are descendants of Abraham because they have not accepted the Messiah. And He's saying, you will recognize that the church, that those who are followers of Me are the true people. Now, this could result in two different ways that they would come and bow down and that they would uh, acknowledge the people of God. It could be that they would wonderfully seek to repent and turn to the Messiah and trust in Him and then become a part of the people of God and they would then recognize who the true people of God are. That would be wonderful that they would, as Psalm 2 says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you. But unfortunately, more likely it will be that they will refuse to acknowledge the church, that they will refuse to acknowledge the Christians, and that as a potter's vessel, they will be broken with a rod of iron. Now, though this church has little power, and though they are up against great, uh, great opposition... Christ tells them that they are going to be kept from the trial that is coming upon the whole world. 
Because they have kept His Word with patient endurance. Because they have been faithful to Him. Christ is saying He's going to be faithful to them and see them through this difficult time. And if you look in verse 10, it speaks of the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, the book of Revelation, hour, does not always mean just a 60-minute time frame. It means a, a time of, of testing. It means a kind of this vague time. And this is one of those portions of Revelation where the translation and interpretation of the text really matters. Uh, the word for world here is a term that refers to the entire uh, known world, the, the whole Roman Empire. That is, uh, we can, although it's not the same word, you can kind of see the same thought in Colossians chapter 1 where Paul says that the gospel has gone out into the whole world. It doesn't necessarily mean that it made it to North America, but it's throughout the entire known world, the whole Roman Empire. So it's this trial that's about to come upon the, the Roman Empire and those who dwell on the earth a term which can also be translated as land. What land would that be? Well, it would be the land of Palestine. And if one can accept that the book of Revelation was written in the late uh, 60s, then the trial that is coming upon the whole world and testing those who dwell on the land becomes very clear. It would be the, uh, it would be the great Jewish war where eventually in 70 AD the destruction of Jerusalem takes place. And so Christ is saying that if the saints in Philadelphia remain faithful, He will see to it that they are preserved through this time of trial, through this time of testing. And while there's clearly application for the saints in the first century prior to this time of trial and tribulation, the principle holds true throughout church history. That is, that Christ will see to it that He preserves His faithful people through whatever trial that they need to be preserved, so long as it accomplishes His purposes. So long as their preservation accomplishes His purposes. Finally, we'll turn to the third and final point, which is the command and promise. The command that they are given is to hold fast. They're to continue on in being faithful. They're to continue on holding on to the Word, holding fast, lest anyone sees their crown. At various uh, times in Scripture, we see crown is used as a reward, such as in James chapter 1, where it speaks about the one who is faithful under trial will receive the crown of life. That is, the reward of life eternal. Christ wants His people to continue on, to not let anything slide, let nothing slip. Not even for one day, let your guard down. At the seminary, we have our professors, specifically the ones who teach us the biblical languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Once they get us through learning the languages, they remind us, now whatever you do, make sure you're using it a little bit every day, Otherwise, it's going to slip and you're going to lose it. It takes a little bit of time every day. In the same way, Christ is saying, hold on. Be diligent. Continue on in pursuing me. Don't even allow it to slip for one day. 
And we also must be vigilant or we too will slip. The promises that he offers to this church in Philadelphia. He says that in verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And then he will write his name, name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. In Revelation 21 and following, we read about the new heavens and the new earth. We're told the dimensions. We're told how it's 144,000 stadia. And if you look at the dimensions, you read how it's, it's a cube. And um, some take that to be a, a, a literal dimensions for the, for the new heavens and new earth. And yet, as we reach back into the Old Testament, we, we search around and we look for uh, places where there is cube-like dimensions, we will find it when we turn to the Holy of Holies in the temple. And one of the things that Revelation, the end of Revelation is communicating is that the whole new heavens and new earth will be a temple for God and His people will be in it serving Him night and day. And here Christ says that His people will be made into pillars. Does this mean that they'll be turned into stone? Well, I hope not. No, it means that they will be those who are secure and a significant part of the new heavens and the new earth. If you recall, as I said, those who were living in Philadelphia, many of them didn't want to live within the city limits. They wanted to travel outside so that if an earthquake came, it wouldn't, uh, the town wouldn't fall upon them. What comfort to know that they would be secure in the new heavens and new earth. That they would never have to go out. That they would never have to depart. That there would be no earthquakes. That there would be no natural disasters. That there would be no invading armies that would come and attack them. They would be secure and they would be a permanent part of this new creation. I think all of us long for security and significance. We don't necessarily like it when there's impending danger. We don't like it when there's the the possibility of, of change that would harm us. And we want the things that we do, the work that we do to be significant, to last. It will be so in the new heavens and new earth. And it will be unchanging. Next he says he will write on these Christians who conquer uh, the name of his God, his own name, and the name of the new Jerusalem. To have your, the name of the new Jerusalem means that you're going to be a citizen of the new heavens and new earth, a citizen of the new Jerusalem. To have the name of God or the name of Christ upon someone means that you belong to God, you belong to Christ. And there will be uh, no, no, no more need for fear. And he ends the same way that the other letters end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The saints are and shall be servants of Christ, and Christ is a good master. So may we be, by God's grace, those who conquer and those who receive the crown. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this specific portion of your word. 
We thank you the encouragement for the encouragement that you gave to these saints and the encouragement that you give to us. O oh Lord, we do pray that you would preserve us through the trials that are in our life in order that we might faithfully serve you and your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.